Let us pray. Loving Lord, your words destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again are plain and simple. Yet due to our sinful nature, they may seem elusive or be misunderstood. Bless today's sermon that we may learn the purpose of your temple and see that it is clean. Amen. Our text for our sermon is John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and money changers sitting at tables. He made a whip of cords and drove everyone out of the temple courts, along with the sheep and oxen. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those selling doves, he said, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews responded, What sign are you going to show us to prove you can do these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Then they believed the scriptures and what Jesus had said. This is the gospel history of our Lord. You notice here when it's all said and done, the people didn't chew him out for doing it. They never said it was wrong for clearing the money changers and the people that were making the temple into a business out. They simply asked by whose authority he did it. And in fact, Many an unbeliever takes a look at this and they mock this story saying Jesus throws a temple tantrum. Ha, 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 ha. Isn't his answer kind of elusive? Destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. Would you get that if you were a Jewish person or even one of the disciples what he was talking about? Twice Jesus cleanses the temple. At this time it happens shortly. I mean, it's more than two months after his baptism. But three years later, during Holy Week, he will cleanse the temple. And a couple days later, they will nail him to the cross. And then the disciples will remember these words. And we have to remember, it actually didn't take 46 years to build that temple. That temple was the one that had been rebuilt 500 years earlier when the people were allowed to return to Jerusalem. And they rebuilt the temple that had been Solomon's temple that the, that the Babylonians had destroyed. But it had been a 46-year restoration project that King Herod had been funding. And so today, as we take a look at why this seeming violence and cleansing the people out, and also why the elusive answer. So our sermon theme is, why the commotion and the seemingly elusive answer? Now to begin to understand that, we have to understand that thanks to the Babylonian exile, what we call the diaspora of the Jews had happened, that many of the people who were there would come as a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They were Jewish people who lived as far away as Rome. And just as it took months for people when America was expanding to go across the Oregon Trail and to make it to Oregon before the fall set in. So these, a lot of these people would come from places like Rome and they would pick the Passover, the biggest feast of the year, to make a once in a lifetime journey to come to the temple. Every man was supposed to pay the temple tax. Now, if you were coming from a place like Rome, you would come with coins that had the image of Caesar 
stamped onto them. Now remember, the Romans expected you to pray to Caesar as a god. So to give one of those coins to pay the temple tax to redeem yourself uh, would be actually like giving the temple an icon, an image, a false god. And so they had the temple shekel. How convenient it would be to arrive and be able to exchange those coins with Caesar's image for something that was acceptable to the temple. And if you wanted to give an animal sacrifice, imagine if you left a place like Rome or if you left from Babylon or someplace where you had to travel for a while, you may have an animal that was without blemish or defect. And remember, they had to be that way because the wages of sin is death and the animal was given as your substitute. So they couldn't have blemish or defect. But by the time you traveled a month or longer from whatever distance you were coming from, who's to say that animal wasn't cut up from the trip? And no longer acceptable. So what a wonderful opportunity to be able to exchange those animals or to be able to just purchase the animal when you got there and know it had been approved by a priest. The business itself wasn't wrong. It was where the business was happening. It would be like if the congregation today was having a bake sale and to do it, you came in where the pews are, where you would normally sit down to worship. Right there was the cell. What image would that give? Many, a, a theologian has recognized when you walk into a church, what catches your attention span is telling you what the worship of that congregation is about. By the way, this is a reminder for us when people find the cross offensive in these things that you start removing those things. What is the emphasis of your worship? This is why, for example, pastors wear robes and we use pulpit and lectern. We're saying avoid the messenger, ignore the person, the sinful man. Listen to the message. So as we get into why all this commotion and we see the business itself wasn't wrong, it was where it was located. And by the way, extra biblical sources like Josephus, the Jewish historian, make it clear to us that Annas, this is the guy who later would be Jesus would be brought for the Romans and deposed him as high priest. But he was the one who originally tried to find charges so they could legally murder Jesus. Annas and his sons made the profit off of this. Now, it wasn't that they made profit off of the profits that the money changers and people made. They made their profits by renting out the court of the Gentiles to these businessmen. But to get into why all the commotion and everything, we have to understand the purpose of the temple. The temple had been patterned, although on a much bigger scale, after the tabernacle, and God had given Moses the instruction for the tabernacle. We're going to get into a little bit of that in a minute. And even though Solomon's temple was more grandiose and had been destroyed, this temple was patterned after Solomon's temple, which was patterned after the portable tabernacle. When Solomon gave the dedicatory speech, in 1 Kings chapter 8, the last third of verse 20 through 21, he says, I have built this house for the name of the Lord. Now, we're going to get a little bit more into the name of the Lord here in a minute. The God of Israel. I have established a place there for the ark, which contains the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. When God brought them to Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them. And it wasn't a covenant of salvation. That one had been made with Adam and Eve. That's the good news of salvation in Christ. 
The covenant he made with the nation of Israel was if they followed the civil, ceremonial, and moral laws to a person, God would keep them as a sovereign, independent, or sorry, independent nation. But they broke that generation after generation, and that's why the Romans were ruling over them at the time Christ came. But still, as part of that covenant, the moral law summarized by the Ten Commandments was there. If you want to know what the Ark of the Covenant looked like, watch the movie Indiana Jones and the Ark of the Covenant. That Ark of the Covenant, though, meant something. The temple designed after the tabernacle, the tabernacle had basically two rooms. The first room was where the showbread was and the altar of incense. This is where the angel Gabriel appeared to the priest Zechariah to tell him you're going to give birth to the Lord's forerunner. But then there was one room called the holiest of holies, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. Once a year, the high priest, who was a sinful man, so he had to go through a ceremonial cleansing with blood, would enter in there, and with the blood of another animal, he would splatter it over the top of the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins that Israel had made, even by accident. Because if you look at the Ten Commandments and you find out even thinking thoughts that violate them, Prove you're unholy. Prove that you have sinned. Prove you cannot earn salvation. And there was quite a symbol there of pouring them over the very laws which were contained inside the Ten Commandments in stone to show that the blood of an innocent victim would cover over your sins. And so, if you haven't already figured it out, the temple with all of its sacrifices pointed ahead to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And that Ark of the Covenant, the top of it, had two cherubim, and what they called the mercy seat was in between. That was to represent the throne of God ruling in heaven for you and I who are sinners. God would come down from heaven and take on human flesh for you and I, ruling over all creation to remove our sins. The temple was, in fact, a foreshadow of Christ. And it was especially a foreshadow pointing out that an innocent victim, true God, who could not sin, would become true man to be our substitute. Now, here's the problem with profiting off of that. If you're profiting off of the forgiveness of sins, then it becomes blatantly obvious that you're selling forgiveness. You cannot have that. God wants it abundantly clear. You do not earn his mercy. You do not earn forgiveness. God gives that to you because he loves you. In Revelation, it talks about the mark of the beast, 666. This falls short of the number of perfection, seven. And you know, the seven is three and one, one and three. So six falls short of seven, and it was stamped on people's hands, their right hands where you do work, and on their foreheads, permeating thoughts that you could not gain forgiveness without earning it. it and this is what Martin Luther stood up to in the medieval church. We never want to confuse profit with the forgiveness of sins. Nor do we want to have the ideas Martin Luther corrected in the medieval ages that a person could be so holy that they could do enough good works that they had extra works to give away. And so, for example, you could buy an indulgence and buy that. Forgiveness is free. And this is one of the biggest reasons why Jesus cleanses the temple. He does not want people thinking you can profit off forgiveness or that forgiveness is something you pay for. 
Jesus makes a whip. Now, we're never told that he actually hits a human being here. And if we picture him throwing a temper tantrum, or as I said earlier, a temple tantrum, we have misunderstood this image. But he clearly drove, drove everybody away. That temple every day gave the very strong message, the wages of sin is death. And with that whip, we find out God is not the way we like to picture him in America today as a kindly old grandfather smoking a cigar with a handful, with a jar of whiskey in his hand, and every time we see him going, oh, you little rascal, and winking at it. God is serious about sin, and he's just as serious about redeeming you and making you holy and forgiving you. Jesus clearing out this temple makes it abundantly clear that God is serious about sin. And we need to understand that today. Today in America, we, we ignore God's plan for marriage, and we run off in lust, and we have children out of marriage and everything else. Excuse me. <coughs> and... Sadly, I can say from this pulpit today, lusting, a man lusting after a woman, even if he can't help it, that's why we need a savior, is a sin. But with political correctness, if I were to say a man guilty is guilty of the same sin for lusting after another man or a woman lusting after a woman, that is considered hate speech today. And there's actually laws in front of our federal government that they're looking to pass that would limit our freedom of religion. God, no matter what the sin is, does not ignore it. And Jesus' Jesus's cleansing of the temple here today makes it very clear God is just as serious about sin as he is removing it. And Solomon even had that in his dedicatory speech. As we continue in Solomon's dedicatory speech in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 41 through 43, he also says, Also for the foreigner... Who is not one of your people, Israel, but one who comes from a distant land because of your name. For they will hear about your great name, your mighty hand, and your outstretched arm, and they will come and pray toward this house. For that foreigner, here in heaven, which is your dwelling place, and do everything for which the foreigner cries out to you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you just as your people Israel do, and because they know that your name is proclaimed in this house which I have built." You and I cannot pray to God, nor can anyone, with our sin. God is all-knowing, so he hears the prayers, but not as a loving father, because God's holiness can have nothing to do with unholiness. In fact, God's holiness destroys unholiness. If I have a glass of water and I pour just a little bit of gasoline in it, it's no longer pure water. Holiness is no longer holy if there's unholiness. It's no longer pure. And so Jesus has come to move, remove your sin, wash it away with his own blood, so that now whether you are Jew or Gentile, God is your heavenly Father who hears your prayers and answers them according to what is best. And notice in Solomon's dedication, he talks about this being an evangelism tool for Gentiles, for non-Jews. And do you know which court they had set up these businesses in? They'd set it up in what's called the court for the Gentiles. If you were uncircumcised, you couldn't go any further. Uh, the, the temple was set up in layers, if you will, till you got to the holiest of holies to show that it, without the forgiveness of sins, with uh, the uncleanness, uncleanliness of our sin, we cannot approach God. So 
The temple here is also about prayer. But do you notice how many times Solomon, just in those few verses of his dedicatory speech, mentions the name of God? God's name tells you everything God does for you. Used to be this way, uh, if you have a last name, for example, Smith, you can bet that somewhere in your ancestry you had a blacksmith or a silversmith or a goldsmith, somebody in the smithing industry in your ancestry. How can you call upon God to do the things for you that you need him to do if you don't know that he does them? God is gracious. God is joy. God is love. Jesus means Savior. The temple represented the name of God and the things God does for us. And so having people there making a profit, if they'd have been outside the temple gates, that would have been fine. These people paid Annas, the high priest, and his family a price so that they could beat out the other money changers and have the convenience of being right there where people were supposed to worship and see God in action for them. This serves as a reminder for us as well. When we come to worship, if you were to sit down and the church is having a big bake sale and that's the big thing that's standing out to you, that's the thing before your eyes. It's distracting from the true worship of God where we call upon his name to save us, to remove our sins. And the greatest act of worship we give is when we trust his word, when it says God became a man and removed your sin for you and was perfect in your place. Ah, but how can God be a man? Many, a a well-meaning Christian has asked that question. How can the infinite be contained by the finite? King Solomon asks that question in his dedicatory speech. First Kings chapter eight, verse 27. But will God really dwell on earth? In truth, the heavens, in, in In truth, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. How can the infinite be contained by the finite? The answer to that theologically is the genus myostaticum of Christ. If you don't know what that is, that's okay, because I can give you an explanation that a four-year-old child can understand. How can God take on human flesh and have the infinite God contained by the finite? Because he's God. God created the rules of science that govern this universe. He's above them. How dare we subject him to it? A miracle is when he suspends them. Now, in connection with that, we're misunderstanding even by asking the question, how can the infinite be contained by the finite? Because then we view Jesus's incarnation as if God's putting on a pair of coveralls. And those two natures are so in communication with each other that it's not just God uh, possessing a human body at all. The two natures are in communication that is inseparable. Colossians chapter 2 verses 8 through 10 warns us about such kind of of thinking and theology. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, which are in accord with, with human tradition, namely the basic principles of this world, but not in accord with Christ. For all the fullness of God's being dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been brought to fullness in him. The temple was meant to be a shadow a shadow of the coming Lord, because God had promised to dwell, uh, 
in the holiest of holies when he gave the pattern for the tabernacle to Moses. God would take on human flesh and dwell among us and be our substitute. This is why in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah the prophet says, and you will call him Emmanuel. God is with us. This is how Jesus can point to them and say, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Because the, true, the, the physical temple was a shadow of his taking on human flesh. But that's not where the temple of the Lord ends. If we look at Ephesians chapter 2, for example, we find out that Christ is the cornerstone. It's by his perfect obedience to the law. It's by his innocence, his death, his being the Lamb of God, that you and I are made clean and forgiven. And when the Holy Spirit enters our heart and gives us forgiveness and gives us faith in that forgiveness, you are a stone placed on top of Christ, who is the foundation stone of the temple of the Lord. Through the mystical union of all believers in a way that we can't describe, it, it defies science, you are connected to Christ and you actually form the temple of God. You and I and all believers, the invisible church. The invisible church is not about profit. Everybody who belongs to the invisible church is free of sin because Christ's blood washes them clean and they are connected to him. The true temple is the invisible church of God. His own body is the temple, but we're connected to that and we form the body of Christ, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. So, by whose authority do you do this? Destroy this temple. And I will build it again in three days because it is when they destroy him, he voluntarily goes to the cross and it is there that he washes you clean of your sin. And then the Holy Spirit sets you on top of the foundation stone of Christ. We can't have the shadow of Christ polluted. We can't have it seem like you can profit off of forgiveness. Now, we want to be careful today. I've mentioned things like not having bake sales right in the middle of the church where you worship. But we want to be careful not to make ceremonial laws that God has established. For example, if we were to say, you cannot show up to church wearing a black bandana on your head. Colossians 2 verses 16 through 18 says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you in regard to food or drink or in regard to festival or the new moon or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were coming, but the body belongs to Christ. The temple was the shadow. When we come together as a congregation, our building reminds us of that, but we have to be careful not to elevate it to a status God did not intend. For you, by being connected to Christ, are the true body of Christ. You are the true temple, as are all believers of all time. We call it the invisible church. Why the commotion and the seemingly elusive answer? It's all for teaching. You see, God is serious about sin and holiness and will not have his true temple, the church, distracted from his saving purpose. He builds the true temple by his death and resurrection, and we freely proclaim the forgiveness of sins Christ has given to you and I. Amen. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his own blood and made us a kingdom and priest to God his Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen.